Walt Disney has been quoted as saying, when you believe in a thing, believe in it all the way, implicitly and unquestionable. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like being all in to me. Brigham Taylor has worked for the company Walt Disney created for 20 years. He has been involved with the production of some of Disney's biggest films in the last two decades, including Remember the Titans, Miracle, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Most recently, he produced several live-action retellings of classics like The Jungle Book, Christopher Robin, and Lady and the Tramp. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so honored to have Brigham Taylor here with me today. Brigham, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I appreciate Brigham is here for a family wedding and is giving of his time in the middle of that trip to be here with us. So thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Well, I am so excited to talk with you. I feel like, and I may be off base in this, but I feel like Latter-day Saints love Disney maybe more than any other group ever. It's a sound theory. I don't have any science (laughs) to back it up, but a lot of anecdotal evidence, I think, that might bear that out. Yeah. 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 I feel like people are going to be very excited to hear from you. So you are a producer Mm -hmm. for Disney. Mm -hmm. I would say most people, regardless of religion, would say that that is a dream job. Can you tell us kind of how you ended up in that position? Yeah, absolutely. I was always interested in film, and I was a student down at Brigham Young uh, back in the uh, early 90s, uh, or finishing in the early 90s. And so I, uh, I knew I wanted to pursue a career. I didn't know exactly what that would mean in the film industry, but I had some inklings of what I wanted to do. And the short version is I worked some freelance jobs that were still in the region here after I graduated, but knew I'd need to find a more full-time gig and all the uh, studios were out West. And so we took our one-year-old daughter and my wife and we just went and took a leap of faith. And I just was pounding the pavement looking for any entry-level job. I had one point of contact with in Disney, and he was helpful in getting me an interview. And that led to uh, a position as an assistant to an executive, which is administrative. You're covering phones. You're doing getting odd jobs, uh, whatever it took. Yeah. Um, but it put you, you know, in this, you know, proximal position to big studio filmmaking. I still didn't imagine I'd have a career there. I thought this would be a stopgap to get me to some other facet of filmmaking. But opportunities kept arising inside Disney. And I really liked it there. I was always a huge fan of the company. I was, you know, like most kids was deeply impacted by the movies growing up, various movies. And uh, was also really impacted by the renaissance of Disney animation, which came later for me when I was in, in college, 89 and beyond. So it was exciting. It was exciting for me to be there. And it seemed like a good opportunity every time I was asked to do something more. And before I knew it, I, I was there for 20 years. And that's when the opportunity came. I, I was I worked my way up to an executive position, which you are responsible to find and develop material to make movies and to help oversee those. And that was really fun and amazing and very instructive. And But I'd always imagine myself eventually on the producing side, which is more boots on the ground, day-to-day on a given project. And so that happened almost six years ago, where they allowed me to sort of create a new deal and create a small production company. And it's been really, really gratifying. So cool. So for those of us that will only imagine what it's like to work for Disney, what is, what is like the best part of working for Disney? For me, specifically at Disney, I mean, 
filmmaking in general has been a thrill for me. Working at Disney specifically, there is a real embracing of a sense of optimism thematically in the kind of material you work on. And also the encouragement to sort of reach out and do stuff that, for lack of a better word, you know, lean into the magic of a given concept or idea. And that's a lot of fun because, I mean, that's originally, I think, what brought me to films at a young age was the the way that you can convey stories and themes through fun and sometimes escapist material. And that's something, you know, movies are uniquely suited to do. And so they do that. They lean into that and that's fun. Yeah. So tell us about this new production arm that they allowed you to develop. What exactly do you do within that? So uh, my production company, like any, basically is there to to find ideas, to generate new ideas, to find creative collaborators like a screenwriter and directors and bring those ideas to Disney. And sometimes that's taking their own existing IP, like titles that are ripe for remake or you think might be, or original ideas that you bring to them. So you need to be the one that generates that create some excitement around it, walk into an office of one of the executives and say, this is what we should do. This is why we should do it and get them to say yes. And then if you do, you go into development, which can be a long period of time. And hopefully that will yield a green light where you go into production. And then you have the responsibility to oversee that whole show start to finish. So you have to wear a lot of different hats depending on the phase you're in. But that's what a production company is there to do. And and they're they're over there, you know, they had enough confidence in me, I guess, to underwrite my little company and keep me afloat there. And then uh, in hopes that I would bring them stuff they'd want to make. Yeah. You mentioned that you grew up loving Disney and Disney sure. movies. Yeah. Um, is there one in particular, I know, very shocking. Is there one in particular that inspired you when you were <clears> younger? <throat> There were a lot. It's, but I, I, you know, for the sake of conversation, I would cite Sword in the Stone as one of the early animated movies. Which First is one, one that you're seeing. working on now. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we have a script that we've developed that I think is a ton of fun and would be an interesting um, adaptation of that. Whether it gets to be made, remains to be seen. You know, movie making is a mystery and you need a lot of stars to align for things to, or, you know, everyone to say yes at the right time. So that could still happen, but we're not currently making that movie okay. but we have so it we have on, on the show IMDB it, and it I is was like, it's there and IMDB is there anything that gets announced they tend to be able to you know uh, uh, pull up in the dragnet and get it in there because we right. did have at a point like we had announced a, a screenwriter and that's true and he wrote a wonderful adaptation and there was even a time when it was in a more proactive position and so it got closer to sort of being announced but nothing's formal until you actually are rolling so that's still perspective. But as a film, the 1963 animated film, uh, which I remember seeing projected on 16 millimeter in a church gym, was just, it just transported me. And, and specifically as at the time, I, I don't know exactly how old I was. I would imagine I was around eight, but I could identify so specifically with this. Um, not that I was living as a, um, you know, as a squire or as a scullery, you know, made in a castle, but this kid sort of, uh, his ambition and his goals and his training sessions were just really, really like magical and transportational. And I loved it. And it took you to, you know, all these wonderful places. And, you know, he specifically, Merlin takes him down under the water as a fish and up into the trees as a squirrel and to the skies as a young as a little bird. And it was amazing. And um, looking back on it also, uh, you don't tend to focus on themes and stories as a kid. You just look at the, you know, you just wrapped up in the moment of the movie. But looking back, it's pretty powerful too. Yeah. 
You mentioned that the stars kind of have to align yeah. when making a movie. And I watched a, a talk that you gave and you talked about how mm-hmm. so many things can go wrong when making a movie. Uh, yeah. Um, do you have any examples of when things have really gone wrong and when they've gone remarkably or unbelievably right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And when you ask about things going wrong, I think about the kind of two general categories. And one is the external issues. It's like uh, a hurricane can come and sweep away an entire movie set and that's happened. And it's a huge challenge and you have to, you know, the whole company has to respond and, and solve a big problem. And because movies want to work like uh, efficiently and want to follow a schedule and it's all tied into numbers and, and also, also delivering creative things on screen. So it, you get dealt, you know, a blow like that. It's a big problem. You know, you can have, as I did, a lead actor who goes down with an unexpected injury and you're pushing five weeks. So those are things that can present creative challenges and certainly uh, budgetary and schedule challenges. Um, but they are external and you can sort of rally around that if you have the right people. And you can also, you know, lean on your financier, in this case, a studio to help you out. Or better yet, you actually have good insurance, which typically comes in and helps. The stuff that's harder to deal with, uh, which is always something that's there and looming, are the challenges of collaboration. A movie is a huge collaboration amongst hundreds of of, uh, creative folks. And um, chemistry sometimes is there, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes you realize only too late that you're not all making the same movie. And those challenges, to me, are ultimately the deepest and probably Mm -hmm. the hardest to overcome and most often sort of yield a movie that's not necessarily what it could be. So sometimes, when early in my career, I wasn't always in a position to do a lot about that. Now it's a big part of my job to try to do something about that. But those are, the, for me, the biggest challenges when you just can't see eye to eye. Yeah. When you're talking about that chemistry and trying to make sure that you are making the same movie, yeah. is that something that you like interview for up front and try to get yeah. a feel for? Yeah. You really do. You have to vet for that. I mean, the process of getting a movie made starts with <clears throat> trying to find, you know, uh, typically, you have to start with the script, so it's it's choosing the right writer. And sometimes you have uh, people come in and rewrite to try to get you closer to the goal. And, and th- that goal is always one that's sort of stated, again, by several people. You have studio collaborators, you have an executive over there, more than one, you have a producer. So you're trying to get a, a small team of people to agree on what it is you're trying to do. And so that's the earliest form of it. But then most importantly, when you have something that's going to move forward is the hiring of a director. And so... Again, as a producer, you have to be um, deeply involved in that conversation, and it is like an interview. I mean, sometimes the director is attached early. Typically, you're hiring that person a little bit deeper in the process, and so you have to use your best to feel that out and to see. And, of course, you sit and talk about it. You have the material, you're talking about it, and you're trying to vet whether you are talking about the same thing. And so you do the best you can. It doesn't always mean that it'll turn out that way because there's so much that you can't determine. But hopefully the longer you live uh, and the more experience you accrue, you get better at it. Yeah. Would you say, Brigham, that that is the key to a great movie or what makes a great film? There are, there's no one thing. There's so many things. I mean, a great movie does rely on, yes, one for artists, uh, but primarily uh, a talented director who knows what they're doing and um, and has a real vision for the material and, and the talent to see it through and to push a lot of great people to get it there, uh, his cast and all the key crew. So it takes that, but it also, at inception, you know, the idea needs to be meaningful or worthy. And that's our job, uh, but you don't always get that right. And so I think you need to start with something that feels uh, or winds up being, you know, you know thematically significant 
And so it takes all those things to align and everyone executing and all the way into uh, the stuff that you absolutely can't control. Because I think some some of the aspects that make a movie great, whatever your definition of great movie is, it has to do things that are out of your control, like um, what's happening in the world, what's happening in the consciousness of your potential audience, what's happening, you know, what the current events and how that lines up. And that can have a lot to say about whether a movie gets recognized or not. So there's just, it's tricky. It's tricky to do that. And of course, it's subjective what you find great. But, right. um, but it does at minimum requires really talented people doing their best work and working harmoniously because you can chart any career of anyone that you admire and they still have misfires because it's hard. It's a lot of things can go wrong and your gut instinct, even if you have a really good one, um, doesn't always lead you in the right direction. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah. You, you mentioned that, that whether or not a film is good is subjective. Obviously that's true. I would say that you've been involved with some of my favorite movies ever. Remember the Titans? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, I also love Million Dollar Arm, which yep. you were involved with making. I've noticed as I was looking through your film credits, a couple things. One, many of your films have involved one of two things, sports mm. and animals. Are those <laughs> two things that you really love? Yeah. I think it's safe to say, I think on the one hand, sports stories, especially the ones I've been lucky enough to work on, would all, I categorize them all as inspirational you know, stories yeah. that are about people overcoming, you know, tremendous odds. And and that's something that aligns with, I think, the identity of Disney. It's about, um, it's a different way of, of a kind of achieving a dream. And and I love sports in general. And so that was never hard for me to warm up to that kind of material. And I was lucky to work on a few of those. Animals comes as a result of, I think, more so, I mean, and I, who doesn't love animals? And we have two wonderful dogs at home. But I think that's more a function of there's this wonderful magical metaphor that you can get to, you know, with something that is as high concept as a talking animal. And it allows this sort of fantastical to unfold, which is something movies can do and, and be a unique delivery system for a given idea or piece of entertainment. So to have a talking animal, whether it's something like Jungle Book or Lady and the Tramp or even stuffed animals like in Christopher Robin, I think that that device, which goes back to, you know, fairy tales, it's just, it's an interesting and fun metaphor to use. And, and Disney, I think as a company and, and Disney as a producer, he latched on to that very early on. And so I'm sort of carrying on in that tradition. More so than me just saying, I must make talking animal movies. It's just, I think, a fun delivery system, you know, yeah. for, to tell a fun story. Absolutely. And I, I don't know if now's the best time to bring up that I actually don't super love animals, but I, I love Jungle Book. Yeah. I thought that it was so and I agree, it, it created <laughs> such an interesting delivery of human emotions that we feel mm -hmm. in the form of those animals. In several cases, Brigham, you have captured characters mm -hmm. that many of us already knew and loved, like the characters in Lady and the Tramp, mm -hmm. Christopher Robin, Mowgli. Mm -hmm. You were also involved with the making of the Santa Claus 2, mm -hmm. which I think is arguably the best Santa Claus movie. Yeah, it has its faction, though. <laughs> Um, but I wondered, what is the key to accurately capturing characters that people already love? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a necessarily a one-size-fits-all. I do think you have to be loyal to what the root of that character is. I mean, if you want to present something, that, I mean, those characters already have some value to an audience, you know, by virtue of the pre-existing material, whether it's a book or a legend or, or what have you. And so I think you have to find what's interesting and unique about that and try to live up to it. 
But ultimately, you also have to put a wrinkle in there to make an interesting story out of that new character. And so Santa Claus was unique, of course, because I was able to jump into something that had already been established, which was about, you know, an ordinary guy who gets, you know, sucked into a a bizarre situation of becoming Santa Claus. (laughs) And so that was the sort of foundation of that. But still, you had to lean into some of the things you expect. But that was really fun. Christopher Robin, on the other hand, was sort of established by Milne. And so we want, we looked very closely at what we thought he was and what he represented. And then we wanted to try to challenge uh, the idea of could he hold on to that? I mean, of course, you, we all grow and change. Uh, and so that's what that movie is about is what happens to you. And, you know, and sort of examining what's the value of the things that I prized as a kid, these relationships that he sort of had with these special friends. Is that relevant to me now as a, as a grown man and a father? And of course, we, we thought, yeah, it is still relevant. So, but finding, I think, you know, what was there and being loyal to it to some degree is important. Yeah. In Christopher Robin, it seems like it's kind of a question of balance. Um, you have this man trying to balance like his career and his family. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've had to grapple with yourself? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. I'm kidding. Yes, I, I was, like, I, I was uh, like, okay, yeah. tell no, us your you secret. You took me face value there. I, I Absolutely. It's a huge challenge. I think, I don't think anyone escapes that that challenge in terms of balancing your work life and your personal life. And if you happen to have children, it's, you know, it's all the more complicated. So yeah, I've struggled with that my whole career and it takes understanding on, you know, within a partnership like a marriage. And I've been very lucky to have an incredibly understanding partner in Michelle. And, you know, cause there's times when you have almost no control over what your professional life is. And if you want to succeed and keep providing for your family, you need to, sometimes put in these very long hours and very, you know, strenuous sorts of schedules. And to, so I, had, I went through all of that and there was no easy way around it. I think we were just lucky to be able to have uh, a strong enough, you know, situation where we could get through it. Um, now it's a little different. There's times where there's, you know, there's uh, seasons of drought, which is where you're in production and you're really under the gun and you have very little time outside of that. And there's times when you're in between productions where you have a lot more time. So there's a little more flexibility depending on the situation, but it is an internal struggle for me. And I imagine for most people. The other thing that I noticed as I was looking through your film credits is that you've worked on a lot of very clean films. Is that obviously Disney, that's kind of their jam, but is that deliberate on your part? And what does it mean to you to be able to create films that people can feel comfortable with sitting and watching with their whole family? Yeah. I mean, I can't argue that it was so deliberate because I wound up, I I came, listen, no matter what I work on, I try to find, you know, a way to say something that I think's, you know, worthwhile, something of value in that. And so there's a lot of kinds of films I would never think I was, you know, you know, uh, well qualified for, which isn't also say that, that I wouldn't like to make films that wouldn't need a Disney label. I've worked on a few. In fact, Disney used to have their sort of non-family brands of, of Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures, and I've worked on a few of those too. But I still think they had their redeeming quality and needed to have that. But, my, you know, it wound up being, I think, a really nice coincidence that I landed at Disney and was able to work there. And I, looking back on it now, I think one of the reasons I was kept around and was able to succeed to whatever degree was that I, I really leaned into it and I loved it. And I never had to feel like I was stooping to make a family film because I love family films and I was raising a family and I felt like a kinship and responsibility there. So I think that to whatever degree I was able to succeed at Disney was because I valued, quote, family 
movies. So, and I still love that now. I've never really grown tired of that. Whether or not I, I move past those or not, we'll see. Time will tell. But it's been it's been convenient because it's it hasn't forced me into any sort of fundamentally difficult situation where I had to say, is this, because you do have to worry about whatever it is you put out into the world. And it's a popular medium. The whole goal is to get a big audience and hopefully impact the audience in some way. And you never want to impact them in a way that would be in any fashion destructive or negative. And sometimes I don't think that means, you know, erasing negative elements in film. Film has to have that. It's only in opposition, only in conflict, I think, does a film ever become interesting. So you got to represent that. You got to represent fear. You got to represent flaws. You got to represent all kinds of things. But it's tricky. You want to do that in a way that's that doesn't sort of sort of hold that up in a positive light or fetishize it in a way that would encourage someone into any kind of bad behavior. That's my point of view anyway. Yeah. I think that's so cool to hear. I read a quote where you said, I remember coming up in the film group at Disney Studios and learning from our head of distribution at the time how much he loved the film goers out here, meaning in Utah. Yeah. Uh, you said our films always overperformed wildly in Utah. And I mentioned yeah. earlier that that members of our church seem to love Disney. I think obviously mm-hmm. the fact that the movies are clean plays a part in that. But are there mm-hmm. any other factors that you think play into why that might be? Sure. I think they're all right there. Uh, I mean, the fact is that uh, Disney strives to, you know, present films that are relevant to all ages. And so it's great for, you know, for family viewing. And there's, you know, you got a lot of families here that like to find entertainment they can do together. And so that's a clear, I think, upside. And I also think that there is, and, and Walt always had the notion of having fun and escapism in his mind. He was, part of his genius was, I think, is remaining in touch with what he would have wanted as a kid. When it, whether it comes to uh, his theme parks or the film entertainment or anything else, he always has a sense of wonder and to present something that, that really touched on magic and fired your own imagination. And so what that has to do specifically here on the Wasatch Front, I don't know exactly other than they, there seems to be a value put on that. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, I do know. So th- why? I couldn't swear, but I do know that, you know, when the receipts would come in on a given Friday afternoon or, you know, Monday morning after an opening, you could look at very quickly, you could see literally by theater how performance, you know, was, was, uh, was doing, you know, what the receipts were for just a given location and top three or four, it was always a handful of theaters here, you know. Um, and so, yeah, whatever it was, we knew that, that uh, we had a strong connection out here. Yeah. Well, I say that we have people listening all over the place. And so I don't want to limit ourselves to just Utah, but obviously sure. large concentration of Latter-day Saints here. And I think that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned that your family loves watching movies together. And I noticed yeah. in a couple of things that I, I looked at, you talked about how you and your wife, that's still like your ideal date night is like dinner and a movie. For sure. Um, what does it mean to you to be able to create art that brings families together, gives couples that opportunity to go on a date night yeah. and and then perhaps have meaningful conversations around those films. Yeah. I mean, to the degree that you can do that, it's it's just hugely gratifying. The reason I think anyone gets into films is because you're impacted by the power of the moving image with sound and music all coupled together is just an amazingly dynamic 
experience. And if it's a good film, you are moved to feel something. You, you've laughed, you've cried, uh, and, and all things in between, and hopefully all those things. And so to be able to be part of something that can present and, and provide the same experience to a family or to a couple or anyone else, that's what you're after. And, and more than that, you're after something that would actually leave a lasting impact. And not all movies do, but some can. And that's the kind of the brass ring I think you're reaching for when you get into to filmmaking. You make something that will leave an impact and that people will care about even years later, the way that I still care about movies that impacted me as a kid and even movies I discovered that were made decades prior that we all watch now. And so that's the thrill of it. And so sometimes you do that and... And again, it's a subjective medium. And sometimes you do that for a person here and not a person there. But anytime you hear back from someone that this movie moved them to feel or to think about something differently, it's the greatest kind of reward you could have, I think, in this business. Yeah. Speaking of having an impact, I loved, I was watching something where you talked about how in 2004, the movie Miracle Mm -hmm. came out. And that was the same year as the Athens Olympics. That's right. And um, you talked about how there were a bunch of Olympians that talked about how that movie inspired them. And so I think it's cool because you see how there's there's a movie, it tells a true story in that case, but tells a story, and then that story inspires real people to do really cool things. Yeah. What does it mean to you to create a work that creates change in the world or in people's lives? Yeah. I mean, I like, like I just said, it, it's, it is the most rewarding thing, you know, and, uh, and you, you keep your humility. I didn't make that movie, but I was privileged to be a real champion for it and to work with a lot of talented people to get it there. And I was so proud of the the result of that movie because it it delivered on the promise of the actual story and that I, I was I'm old enough to remember watching the 1980 game in which they uh, they beat the Russians and then went on to win the gold medal in the next game and and you know I grew up in Northern California nobody cared at the time they didn't have, there was no San Jose Sharks no one cared about hockey but I became fascinated with hockey as we all did we all became in that moment huge huge fans and so I felt this degree of, of responsibility and reverence and reapproaching that story and. And we got the right team, we got the right filmmakers in, they did a great job. But to cut back to your question, it was a thrill. It was a thrill that we could do that story justice and that we could, it was it was really sad, it was tragic. We lost Herb Brooks during the making of that movie. We were privileged to be able to have him on board early on and, and our writer got wonderful FaceTime and interviews with him. And, and we, I think, captured accurately because he, I think, amongst uh, an ensemble, he emerges as the lead of that movie. But I think we captured that. And and I think that's what people were responding to is this guy who was able to take this disparate group of kids, these college kids from different parts of the country and and uh, bring them together as a team. And that was one of the strongest, I think, themes of that film. And then for me, it did also, you know, deliver the most personally rewarding experience of my life. As a sports fan and yeah. from the Bay Area, I was in 2010 living at a time when our baseball team, the Giants, were heading to the postseason, you know, what were making a run for the first time in a while. They'd, they'd been in the World Series in 89 and then in 2002 lost, but now we're coming back in 2010. And we we're at, I won't bore you here, hopefully not, with, in a pivotal game, a pivotal moment in a very pivotal game, which really was going to turn the tide against the prohibitive favorites, the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm there with my father and a couple of my brothers in this really sort of meaningful moment in the stands going, uh, we're between uh, the top and the bottom of the ninth in a tie game. And whoever was in the booth uh, at, 
at AT&T Stadium decided to play this clip on the big jumbotron in the stadium. And the clip was Kurt Russell in his locker room speech as Herb Brooks talking about, and obvious parallels here, that the Phillies were the, the favorites. They were like the Russian team. I'm not comparing Philly fans to Soviets. <laughs> I'm just saying they were the juggernaut. Yeah. And we were the scrappy upstarts. And so this speech sort of, it was amazing how on point it was and how it pumped up this crowd of 42,000 people that just started to rise in their seats and cheer. This moment in a film that I, I had been involved with. And that that alone was kind of surreal and really fun. And then to uh, cut to the bottom of the ninth, we uh, won in a, a walk-off after a sacrifice fly and won the game and went on that year to win the World Series. So it was a storybook moment and it was infused with this thing that we had created. And I was like, that was fun. Yeah, it like created a moment for you. Yeah, I want to believe that it literally put a charge into the Giants going in the half inning and, 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 and delivered that win for us. And uh, you can believe that or not, but I, I choose to believe that. I love it. I love it so much. When you're looking for, so I love storytelling. And when you're looking for a true story uh-huh. to portray on camera, what do you look for in like a story that, that could translate from, mm-hmm. you know, something you've read to being on screen. Yeah. I mean, generally, I think you're looking for something that rises above the mundane. There's a lot of interesting, nice stories. You want to find something that you feel like maybe I haven't seen it, that story, or maybe told in that way or in that context or in that environment. Presumably, it's something that that inspires, right? That usually a great true story is about someone who's achieved something really notable and has done it in notable fashion. And so you can see, and you know, in visual fashion, how this might look as a film and how you might be able to render it on screen. But more than anything, you're just looking for something that grips you, right? And you feel like, wow, that, that moves me. And I think that the retelling of that on screen could move a lot more people. But all these other factors do come into play because, you know, any movie that gets made at any level takes a lot of buy-in. And so you're going to have to talk to a lot of people who are going to listen to this story and have to find a reason why it feels unique and different and special because you have to try to convince a lot of people to come see it, whether it's on screen now or whether it's even streaming on a service, it still has to cut through somehow. And and that idea is all important. And then it's also important in terms of how it's, you know, the execution of the film and how it's cast and all those other elements, but it has to rise above. Uh, and that's, it's hard. It's always hard. Yeah. Brigham, how does your faith, I think it's funny. I should say this first. Your, your name is like a very Latter-day Saint name. Yeah, do you get that yeah. a lot? Yeah, I do. Amongst those who get it. Yeah. I Googled your name. Uh-huh. And it kept coming up with references to Brigham Young and John Taylor. So yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. But don't worry, to your IMDb is the top yeah. pit. So yeah. you don't need to worry about good, SEO or good. anything. Finally. Um, but yeah. how how has your faith influenced <clears throat> your work and what you do? Obviously, a job like this is a very much a part of you, but I imagine your faith also a big part of your life. How do those things, two things mix? For me it has a huge impact on the kinds of themes that I find valuable in terms of talking about what kind of characters and stories you want to, you want to, you know, go out and produce. And so I, I don't think I've, I've, uh, and been lucky to, to think only work on projects that I can really espouse. I think personally that, uh, value the way we treat each other, the value the way and the consequences of, of how we behave. 
And so that, that's meaningful, and that's sort of at the core of a lot of that. And I think that it's also impacted me in ways that I recognize, maybe in other ways I don't, how I try to conduct my own professional life. And at this point, a big part of my job, especially when we're prepping or in production, is how you work with people. And I feel like I was given a foundation in terms of how to try to work constructively together. I, I've been in a lot of positions where you have to do that. You have to go into a situation with open ears and open eyes and an open heart uh, and uh, with empathy towards what everyone's situation, but also try to inspire those people to do their best through positive reinforcement. You know, I've, I've, I've seen how it works either way. And I, I, I do believe that, you know, if you try to operate out of love and understanding that you're going to get the best result and uh, it's not always easy, but that that's been reinforced for me now over time. And I've, I've, uh, I've seen the, the value of treating people that way. Yeah. Brigham, I appreciate that perspective because even as you were talking and giving the first part of that answer, I thought, I'm sure then if that's the way that you feel about what you portray on camera, it bleeds into the way that you do your job um, and the way that you treat people. Brigham, thank you so much for giving of your time and for sharing these insights. What does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a wonderfully uh, big and broad question, but for me, one answer would be is to basically uh, to walk the walk. I, 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 there's an old, you know, saying, I don't know who said it, but um, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And I think that being all in is, is being committed. And so it's allowing your behavior to be affected by what you purport your beliefs to be. And again, it comes back to me in the most fundamental way. It's about how we treat one another and how we, you know, work with one another. That's what life is. It's a series of encounters and conversations and interactions. And if you do that from a fundamentally empathetic and, you know, that, you know, one of the two great commandments is just loving your neighbor. And it, you know, there it's, it's, that is a huge challenge, uh, even with people that you think you get along with, <laughs> but it's but it's real and it really does have a lasting impact if you can try to sustain that attitude, you know, with other people and um, and again, you know, look at a situation and approach a situation and a collaboration and a work environment with love and understanding. Of course, you have to step up and you have to decide things and some you can't please everyone but you can hopefully make sure that everyone feels understood and maybe valued in the process so uh coming back to your question that's that's what i think all in is it's walking the walk thank you so much Mm -hmm. thank you for being here with us thank you for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of All In and a huge thank you to Brigham Taylor for joining us. We hope you'll stay with us because as Walt Disney said, we keep moving forward, opening new doors and doing new things because we're curious and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. Thank you for coming on this journey with us and thanks to Derek Campbell from Mix It Six Studios for guiding our sound design all along the way. We'll be with you again next week.